Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. This is your way, love is what you make of it. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Luciani, welcoming you to another session of self-coaching, where real-life emotional struggle, whether it's depression, anxiety, relationship conflict, losing weight, or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed. Teaching you to become your own best coach. Well, this week and today, I would like to talk about something that's rather ubiquitous. And what is that, you may ask? Well, it's anxiety and or stress. Two things that we all are very familiar with, at least the, the concepts or the words themselves. I'm so stressed. I'm so anxious. Well, is there a difference between the two? Well, there is a difference. And this can be a bit confusing because anxiety and, and stress are like first cousins. They're really very closely related. In fact, both stress and anxiety share very almost identical symptoms. You might have trouble sleeping, digestive issues, difficulty concentrating, even muscle tension or getting angry and irritable. These can come from either stress or anxiety. Well, let's begin by describing stress. We all know stress. We've all been stressed and we've all said to someone else or to ourselves, I am so stressed. What is stress? Well, it's a physiological and behavioral response to an immediate threat or to a challenge. So when you perceive something to be threatening, what do you do? Well, you don't do anything, but a tiny region at the base of your brain called the hypothalamus, it sets off uh, an alarm. And this alarm is the fight-flight response. You may have heard of that. Uh, it's a system that prompts the adrenal glands to produce adrenaline, cortisol. These are the stress hormones. They rev us up. They start pumping blood and our heart rate increases in our respiration. And we become fight or flight machines. These are evolutionary adaptations. You and me and everyone on this planet is designed to live, to survive, to not die. So we have these survival mechanisms, the fight-flight mechanism, and this is triggered when we are experiencing stress. Stress is what motivates us to go into the fight-flight response to protect ourselves from that which we perceive to be threatening. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, when I was out on a fossil dig in a, a phosphate strip mine, there was an area that was unsettled moral, uh, which is very analogous to quicksand. And I got caught in that. And I started to sink very slowly up to the top of my thighs before the adrenaline got to be so high. And I knew that something had to be done. And it wasn't so much conscious. It was this fight-flight response, this survival response. And what I did is I started to slip my legs out of the hip boots I was wearing, splayed myself out as much as I could across the surface area. I was able to inch my way to the, to the bank where I had some solid ground. Now, I got to tell you, 
that was a survival reaction. And I don't think I've ever since, and hopefully never will experience that level of stress. I mean, that was do or die stress. And when I reached that far bank, I I don't think I've ever been as depleted as I was. It took me days to really recover. I was totally spent. And that's because everything goes into survival. And once you're in survival mode, nothing else is important other than your body doing what it needs to do to function. Now, if we had to think about what to do, gee, what should I do? Should I try to just splay myself? No, you'd probably be quicksand fodder at that point. You react. This is the survival instinctual know-how that comes to aid, comes to bear when we are threatened. Quicksand aside and other such devastating experiences, it's not just catastrophic events that create stress. Obviously, you know this. Take, for example, boredom. Now, I consider boredom an emotion. And for a lot of people, boredom creates a very uh, uneasy state. It becomes stressful, especially if you're a, a kind of a compulsive person, an action person, a bit of ADD in your personality, and you're sitting around and you're saying, oh, what am I going to do? I have nothing to do. I'm bored. What should I? And what happens is that the stress begins to build up. So this is a core component of stress. There is a circumstantial trigger, in this case, being bored. And then say we decide to react to that stress and you go inside and you turn on the TV and you get immersed in a very intriguing movie, the stress goes away. So this is the hallmark of how I'll define stress today, that there is a trigger. In my quicksand event, the trigger was getting stuck in quicksand. That was the stressor, the trigger. And the response, whether it be getting to solid ground or turning on the TV, once you reach solace or quiescence or safety, the stress goes away. So this is a fundamentally important part of understanding stress. It's triggered circumstantially, and once the trigger or the stimulus is removed, the stress recedes. And it's any event or scenario that can make you feel frustrated or nervous that can trigger stress. So many examples, you know, waiting for an important call, and you're sitting there tapping your fingers. When is she going to call? When is she going to call? How about stuck in traffic? Now, that's kind of almost a universal stressor, especially here in the Northeast. I was on the turnpike yesterday, and the turnpike is an experience in, uh, in mass movement of many automobiles and mass tempers as people cut each other off at 60 and 70 miles an hour. And then you see all those red taillights up ahead, and you say, oh, no, and you start to crawl. Stress, right? How about being yelled at? Someone yells at you. You're on the job, and you're doing the best you can. And your boss comes over and says, what? It's taking you so long with that report. It should have been on my desk hours ago. Stress. How about being late for an appointment? And, and being late for an appointment and stuck in traffic? Oh, my gosh. So stress certainly can be and is circumstantially driven. And once that trigger is passed, typically stress eases. You get that call. She calls up and finally 
There's solace. The traffic begins to move, as it did last night. And I got home. And where's that stress from the traffic? It's gone. So it's circumstance-driven. And you know what? When I say circumstance-driven, yes, that's the trigger. But the experience of stress is, on some level, it's some loss of control. Me with the quicksand, loss of control. Feeling bored, can't figure out what to do. Stuck in traffic, can't move. So when we feel that loss of control driven by a circumstantial stressor, we feel, by definition, stress. Okay, so that's part one. Now let's differentiate stress from anxiety. So where stress is circumstantially driven and related to specific reality triggers, anxiety is what I might call anticipatory. It's related to some anticipated future loss of control or some future chaos, right? Let us, for clarity's sake, let us imagine that cows are sentient beings, meaning they have rudimentary consciousness. Now, we're just pretending here <laughs> that cows have a rudimentary consciousness. So let's say that Daisy the cow is out grazing, and Daisy's having a good old time, chomping away and just relaxing, enjoying the day and looking at the clouds and chomping. And this is this is Daisy's life, very complacent. But since we are now imbuing Daisy with some rudimentary consciousness, Daisy all of a sudden stops munching and, and says to herself, what if the farmer forgets to feed me? Well, for Daisy, the sentient cow, we would say, poor old Daisy's feeling anxiety. But since cows are not sentient beings, since cows don't have consciousness, and here's what's important, cows do not get anxious. It's a fact. Cows are very happy, just munching along, not thinking about tomorrow, worrying about the past. They're just in that field with the what do cows eat. I guess they eat grass <laughs> in the field, munching away. Bliss. What am I saying? Cows don't get anxious. That's what I'm saying. People get anxious. And why is this? Well, because people, you and me and everyone else, we can anticipate chaos. We can anticipate things that may or may not happen. It's part of our adaptive brain that tries to protect ourselves. And we are made to anticipate, to be concerned. Fred and Wilma Flintstone would have a hard time staying safe in the old primordial Stone Age world if they didn't have some anticipatory antenna, or I use that metaphorically, to be able to anticipate danger. So not all anticipation is bad, but we know anxiety and we know what it feels like to have that anticipatory crunch going on in our mind. You might be worrying and anxious about your health, right? Your job. What if I lose my job? You might get anxious about your partner leaving you. What about those school exams, right? So you, you get anxious about all these anticipatory things that could happen. And again, I call it the what ifs, the what ifing. What if this and what if that? Daisy never had that problem. Daisy doesn't say, what if the grass stops growing? She just munches. She's totally present, which is another uh, kind of uh, interesting note in that when you are anxious, you are no longer present. Because if you think about it, 
being present is staying in the moment, projecting yourself into an uncertain future or reminiscing about uh, the guilt of some past event. It takes you out of the present and puts you into an area where now you're feeling the chaos, the abstract chaos of not being present. But it's not just our conscious mind that projects us into the future that causes anxiety. It's insecurity. You see, insecurity hijacks our consciousness. Now, why does that happen? Well, we are born vulnerable. We are vulnerable creatures. And insecurity and vulnerability are just about synonymous. So the vulnerable child needs to develop coping strategies, strategies that compensate for our vulnerability. And the more vulnerable a child feels, and this could come from many sources, it could come from ineffective parenting, trauma, separations, loss, all that kind of stuff creates the format or the precursor to insecurity becoming more formidable. And once insecurity becomes more of a factor, then the need to compensate, the need to do things to feel safe becomes more apparent. I would say that that worrying, for example, is one of the more universal attempts to compensate insecurity. You see, if we worry about things going awry before it happens, then the insecurity part of us is saying, well, if I could figure it out, then I could be safe and then I can relax and then I could be okay. So what if she says this? What if he says that? See, by anticipating neurotically, by letting insecurity start steering, you may not get the solace you're looking for because there is no end to what ifing. It just snowballs one what if into the next. But while you're what ifing, you're at least feeling like you're doing something. See, insecurity is driving that urge because in the moment, in the present, you're not feeling safe. And since you are allowing insecurity to contaminate your thoughts, then you begin to compensate. You're trying to find ways to stay safe. Now, it might not just be worrying. Maybe you'll start avoiding, pulling away socially, not getting involved in things because the insecurity part of you is saying, what if? What if I venture out? And what if I get rejected? So insecurity is steering, and what it's doing is it's trying inadvertently to protect you from life that you perceive to be dangerous. And the more neurotic you are, the more you see danger in safe places. So if you want a, a metaphor for, for, for understanding how anxiety and anxious thinking uh, or attempts to compensate vulnerability think of think of the fuses in your house now if you have a house with many appliances and you start turning on all the appliances one by one by one and adding new appliances and adding and more and turning things up and, and all of a sudden what happens to the wires well they start to heat up well maybe they don't heat up but let's imagine they do i guess they do and as they heat up, we, being the diligent homeowner that we are, we realize that we have to compensate for this load, or we're going to have a fire. Fortunately, the fuse will, the breaker or fuse will blow, and that will shut down any further damage. So you run to the hardware store, and what do you do? You get a bigger fuse, right? So you compensate for the buildup of anxiety by getting bigger fuses, by more what-ifing, by more withdrawal from life, 
you compensate and you keep adding more and more, not excuses per se, but strategies to protect you. Now, here we go, full loop. <laughs> you ready? Fasten your seatbelt. Because by trying to compensate insecurity, we start to generate stress. So you see that stress itself now can come from our anxious thinking. And this is why it's so hard to differentiate stress from anxiety, because sometimes stress is the result of anxiety being the trigger. And you, and you should know something about stress and or anxiety, either one. And I say this somewhat tongue in cheek. They're both bad for you. There's a line from the play Men of La Mancha, whether the rock hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the rock, either way, it's going to be bad for the pitcher. So whether your stress comes from a circumstantial stressor, a trigger, stuck in traffic, quicksand, I doubt you'll be in quicksand, but you, you might get stuck in traffic. Or whether it comes from the projection of insecurity that takes you out of the present into some uncertain future. Either way, the stress that's generated, the physiological stress that's generated is going to be bad for you. And you kind of know this, I'm sure, intuitively. But think of a bucket. And in that bucket, we have our very important balancing chemicals, dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin. and our brains are made to stay in balance. It's called homeostasis. So if we get a little stressed, we're, traf we're in traffic and the traffic abates, our balancing homeostatic tendencies come into play and we rebalance, we regroup, and we're back to being normal. But with chronic stress or with chronic anxiety, what we're doing is we're poking holes in the bottom of that bucket. So those balancing chemicals don't have a chance to rebalance because they're dripping out at too fast a rate. Drip, drip, drip. And you become in an imbalanced state. And that's what we might call either an anxiety disorder, depression, or just feeling miserable, down in the dumps, out of sorts. So we need to replenish our chemicals. And there's two ways to do that. One is through medication, which is an artificial method, but nevertheless, a successful method of rebalancing the chemicals by slowing down the absorption and loss of these chemicals. And the other is plugging up the holes. Now, with a circumstantial stressor, of course, that's not always possible. Take the traffic jam. I mean, you can't do anything about being stuck in traffic, but what you can do is really look at the judgment and the interpretations you're making about the traffic. For example, I hate traffic. I can't stand this as you pound on the steering wheel. Well, what you are doing now is you are contributing more holes to the bottom of the bucket. You are stressing yourself beyond the need for circumstantial reaction to the traffic. You are now adding to that psychological friction, which adds to your duress. So with circumstantial stress, you need to interrupt the stress. Again, staying with the traffic, you, you might turn on the radio, call somebody up, think about something more pleasant, defocus from the traffic. Since it's out of your control, what happens is that we, we don't want it to be out of our control. So like a petulant child, we're saying, no, no, 
no, I don't want to be stuck in traffic. Well, like I said, it's not almost like a petulant child. You become a petulant child. You know, I call that the child reflex. So the next time circumstances are driving you to become miserable, aside from distracting yourself, defocusing from the circumstantial stressor, watch out what you're saying to yourself, how you're interpreting and judging the situation, and whether or not you're adding friction upon friction. This is something you can do, but it doesn't occur to you if you are someone who gets habitually involved in the stress of the moment and just starts complaining and reacting and belly aching. So interrupt the circumstantial stressors in your life, become more present, and be like Daisy. Just start munching the grass. It's only the grass in front of you. And don't be thinking about, when will this traffic jam end? How long am I going to be? Just relax. Roll down the window. Feel the breeze. Now, with anxiety, it's a little different. You could employ the same techniques when it comes to anxious thinking, but you have to be a little bit more diligent. Because since anxiety is driven by a habit of insecurity, that habit can persist over time. It can persist over a lifetime. That's the nature of habits. If we reinforce or feed habits, they only become stronger. So if you are prone to anxiety thinking, and you're like the sentient cow daisy with consciousness, and you're thinking, will the farmer feed me? Well, you need to realize that what you're doing is you are reinforcing insecurity. It's the doubts, the fear, the negativity that reinforce the habit of insecurity, which then generates the anxiety. Now, anxiety slash insecurity-driven thinking can be quite stubborn. It's a habit. So unlike sitting in traffic and just diverting your attention and being more present, although that helps with anxiety, the habit itself will persist if you keep feeding it. Especially when you're feeling that anxiety, You've got to become more aware of your thoughts. Are they doubts? What if I can't handle this? Fears. I'm going to lose my job. Negativity. No one likes me. You can't go on feeding insecurity and expect to be free of anxiety. It's as simple as that. But it is a process. You have to neutralize the habit of insecurity by not feeding it. And you have to maximize a new habit. A new habit of being more present, chomping on the grass, not projecting yourself into the future or the guilty past. So with anxiety, you need to realize that anxiety is fueled by insecurity. Insecurity is a habit. And this habit of insecurity is fed by doubts, fears, and negativity. So you have to become more conscious. You have to become more aware when you are in these stressful, insecurity-driven places, what's going on right now in my mind? Is it a doubt, fear, a negative? You need to become more critically conscious of your thoughts. And you need to realize that you can scrutinize these thoughts. You have to verify the veracity of whether your doubt or your fear or your negative that you are experiencing is factual. Or... Is it some kind of projected insecurity about things that may never happen? Ground yourself in the present. Be like Daisy. Chomp on the grass. Be in that grass. 
Don't be worried about tomorrow. Now, it's easy for me to say, of course. But in order to become less worried about tomorrow's problems that may or may not happen, you have to practice being present. You have to practice being in the grass and letting go of the needless reflexive thinking that reinforces insecurity. And it is practice that needs to take place over time. Habits are learned, and all habits can be broken. But habits have been laid down over time. They were practiced. So if you're going to replace a destructive habit with one that is adaptive and healthy, it's going to take time because you're doing two things simultaneously. You're disengaging from the habit of insecurity, neutralizing it, and you're reinforcing a new habit, a healthy habit, a mature habit, and you're starting to munch the grass. You're becoming more present. You're living your life more in the grass. And this is what self-coaching is all about. Self-coaching is trying to coach yourself to break the habits of insecurity, to release yourself from the stressors of life. Stress is friction. Friction erodes. It'll erode your personality. It'll erode the quality of your life. So let's start eliminating frictions. Let's start recognizing the habit nature of what holds us back and what has held us back, thought by thought sometimes. Now, you can't be thinking about what am I thinking 24 hours a day. Obviously, it'll drive you crazy. But when you feel that knot in your stomach, when you feel anxiety, when you feel the stress rising, especially when there isn't a circumstantial stressor, that's when you want to check out what's going through your head. That's where you want to challenge. Do I need to be seeing this this way? Does Daisy need to wonder if the, if, if the damn farmer is going to feed her? No. You don't need to be worrying about things that may not happen. Why is that? Well, you might feel, well, that's going to put me at risk, isn't it? No, not necessarily. You have instincts. Look at me with my quicksand. I didn't have to figure out. I reacted instinctually, intuitively. You have much more to you than you realize. Many resources that come to play. If life challenges you, you'll figure it out. And that's self-trust, which ultimately is the end game of self-coaching. With self-trust, you don't have to wonder how you'll handle tomorrow. You trust that your resources will come to bear. You'll figure it out. And the more you are willing to trust that you will figure things out, how many problems have you solved in your life, right? You wouldn't be here today if you weren't a great problem solver. You get through, you get by, but you got to trust yourself. You've got to start trusting that if you let go of insecurity, you're giving yourself a more complete opportunity to be resourceful and successful. And today's podcast, as every podcast, is brought to you by my latest book on learning anxiety and depression, the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. And you can learn a lot more about self-coaching at my website, selfcoaching.net. So until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, it's not an option. By definition, Victims are powerless, and you are not powerless. Remember, everything's hard until you make it simple. So join me every week. And what do you say we make it simple together? Believe in yourself. Reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender. There is more than it seems. Hold on and fight. Follow your heart.